0: And welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Redd. I'm joined as always by Nizar Hassan. Hi, Nizar. How's it going?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I am doing well. We are recording uh, uh, a little bit later than usual. We're recording on Sunday morning, so we're right on that cutting edge, right? This is going to be... uh, We're going to get this out to you uh, tonight, Sunday night, Monday morning. So in this podcast, what we want to do is go through a bit of what happened... Last week, there was a lot of things that happened. Merkel visited, lots of other things. And so we're going to go through that pretty quickly. And then we're going to get onto our main topic, which is uh, about racism and about uh, migrant domestic workers in the country. Uh, And we're going to talk, we're we're going to try to dig down a bit and understand what's really going on there. And what are the drivers and what are the potential solutions to that? Uh, Today, Sunday, there will be a march uh, for migrant domestic workers. 3 p.m. And yeah. So no, this no, no. is a very timely thing. Yep. Uh, but first off, let's get to the news. Uh, Merkel visited. Uh, that was the big story. She came in Thursday, left Friday, met with Aoun and uh, Hariri, Birri, uh, Riyad Selemi, the, the central bank governor, uh, didn't really announce anything, uh, anything big. Like the, the big takeaway, uh, she said that uh, any return of Syrian refugees should happen with UN coordination. Right. So that is as opposed to other people who say, well, Lebanon and Syria just need to talk to each other and have this happen sort of on a bilateral basis, Mm -hmm. which is seen by some as code for we want to sort of kick these people out before they're ready. Right. So this is sort of the, the the subtext of what's going on here. And Merkel is basically saying, no, we don't want that to happen. We want to make sure that refugees are taken care of. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're they're not sent back before they're ready, uh, ready to go. She also said, uh, you know, Lebanon needs structural reform. She talked about, you know, there was this uh, CEDRA conference, a Paris 4 conference back in April where a bunch of people pledged like $11 billion uh, to help Lebanon. And I think Germany uh, pledged something like 65 or or, or something million dollars uh, back during that. And she said, for this to happen, you know, Lebanon, you need to uh, do some structural reforms. There are certain things that need to take place. So this is sort of things that uh, are known. And her visit came on the tails of the EU announcing their biggest uh, support package for Lebanon yet. So this is the EU, not Germany. uh, But they announced 165 million euros, about $190 million. And and, uh, that was on on Wednesday, I think, for World Refugee Day. But it was also like the day before Merkel arrived, right? (laughs) So (laughs) there's there's this uh, political thing, which I mean... Maybe there's a connection, maybe not, but, you know, when <laughs> a, a, one of the big world leaders comes, you know, and something's announced the day before, okay, it, it sounds like the two are connected, uh, especially because she didn't announce any new aid while she was here, right? So this yes. was sort of the, the thing that was announced.
1: Her red carpet. Yeah,
0: exactly, sort of paved the way for, for a nice visit. Uh, One more thing about yeah. Merkel.
1: The internet is full of Merkel memes now. Are you seeing those? No. Yeah, everyone is putting memes out of um, this photo of Saad Hariri pointing at something in the city with Merkel on his side, on the balcony of the Grand Serai, And now this is the meme of Lebanon's Facebook for the last two days. And it's really hilarious. You should see it.
0: Oh, my God. That's great. <laughs> uh, speaking of refugees, we also had a little bit of movement on the the ongoing feud between Gibran Basile, the foreign minister, and UNHCR, right? So UNHCR responded to Basile, or, or word came out that they had sent a letter to the foreign ministry Mm -hmm. and in that letter the the people of the foreign ministry were kind of happy about this right because uh they saw the letter as a big change in tone Mm -hmm. uh basically the unhcr becoming a lot more conciliatory towards uh Jibran Basile and his criticisms of them and the way that they had been treating the refugee file. Uh, so there's still the question as to how much substance there is in this UNHCR letter, but definitely the tone has changed, and and so hopefully we'll see something of of a. We'll see an end come to this uh, problem that was between Basile and UNHCR. You remember a couple yep. of weeks ago, Basile uh, ordered that all of uh, the, the processing for visas be stopped for UNHCR staff, which is yep. a really big deal, right? Yep. Uh, so that may be coming to sort of a, a conclusion. We'll see. Um, also, we, we had a few things going on with cabinet formation this week, right? Yeah.
1: Hariri's back. Yay. All right. <laughs> so... <laughs>
0: So, yeah, like, uh, since Harir was designated, we had Ramadan, then we got Eid, and, like, now he's back in town. So now the hard work begins. And so supposedly he was going to deliver a list of names, like, in portfolios, like uh, a, a proposed cabinet to President Aoun uh, by the end of the week. So he met with Aoun on Friday, but that didn't happen. So he didn't deliver this list. Mm-hmm. Supposedly he might be meeting with him again today. We don't know. By the time you listen to the podcast, you will know whether this happened or not. But this might be happening today or soon. Um, also, it seems as though the the, the PSP, the Progressive Socialist Party for, of Wale Jumblat and uh, the Free Patriotic Movement, Chebran Basile, they sort of toned down their rhetoric. It, it was sort of sort of at a point where it was con- there was a concern that it might sort of boil over and. That's, a, that's been tamped down for now. Yeah, the, the, it But without, really escalated though. Yeah, but with, without any sort of real uh, resolution of the underlying issue, which is Jumblat wants three seats in cabinet and the FPM wants one of those uh, Dru seats for Talal Arslan, their ally, and yeah. Wally Jumblat's historical uh, enemy yeah. Um, also, we, we had an issue with Iranian visas at the airport, right? It, so, general security supposedly took this decision where, like, Iranian visas don't necessarily need to be stamped. They can be stamped on, like, a, a entry and exit can be stamped on a separate sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, that caused an issue between Abbas Ibrahim, who's saying, like, this is normal. Uh, it's not that big of a deal. And uh, Nuhad Mashnu uh, of the future movement, who was saying, uh, well, we need to look into this and, and stop this. Uh, uh, but it, it's sort of weird because it, ca- it it emerged later in the week, uh, and this hasn't been verified, but it emerged later in the week that apparently this policy also applied to some Gulf nationals So, or, or, or a similar policy did. I don't really understand the whole problem here. I, I guess the the best explanation is that supposedly some Iranians who had a stamp in their passport from Beirut. We're having a harder time gaining entry or doing something in the West.
1: That's what I've heard as
0: well. Right, which seems kind of weird, right? But I I guess maybe an Iranian who flies directly between, I don't know, Paris and Tehran is less suspicious than an Iranian who like goes to Beirut as well. But I I don't know, it it seems kind of weak. Like there's something that I'm missing.
1: Probably linked to Hezbollah, but I'm not sure either, to be honest.
0: Yeah, anyway, we'll see what goes on with that uh, this coming week. Uh, also, a security plan for Baalbek and Hermel in the Bekaa Valley that's uh, imminent. It, it should be starting any time now. Uh, they've had huge security issues uh, over the past few weeks. Uh, a, a lot of it's like uh, violence between uh, rival, rival clans uh, or violence within, it, sometimes inside the same family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there have been just a string of incidents of like shootings and, and things going on. And a lot of people from there are basically calling for the state, like, you you need to come in, you need to do something. In fact, Nabi Birri even came out and said the army needs to go in, reestablish security there. Uh, so we're expecting that to happen any time. Uh, even last week, we saw the army had started to set up mobile checkpoints. Uh, and so we're, we're expecting something a, a lot larger to happen this week. Uh, we also had Samir Jaja went to court. Uh, so there's there's this like long running running feud over the control of LBCI, the Lebanese Broadcasting Cor- yep. Company or Corporation, uh, right? And so the basically this all goes like way back. To like 1992, supposedly, when it became clear that Jaja was about to like be indicted and go to prison and all of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what they did, the, the Lebanese forces, his political uh, movement uh, and military came out of a military, right. Uh, they had all these assets like LBC, uh, and so they put them in certain people's names or whatever. And what of was uh, Pierre Daher, sort of like bought LBC. He created LBCI, and they bought LBC to sort of like change the ownership, right? Yeah. Uh, but then in two thousand five, when Samir Jaja was released, when the Syrians left, and Jaja uh, uh, was allowed out of prison, he said, "Well, I, I want my TV station back." And Pierre Daher said, "What are you talking about?" I paid for this. It's mine now. Mm. And they've been in this years-long court battle uh, 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 over this. And finally on Friday, Jaja went to court personally. He mm-hmm. showed up at, at the Palace of Justice in Beirut uh, to to argue his case before the judge, you know. So
1: we might see an end of this case soon, huh?
0: Maybe. I I I wouldn't say soon because the, like they so they heard from uh, the the judge heard from both Jaja and Daher. On Friday, Uh, and then the court was adjourned until October eighth. Yep. So it's a it's a it's a long (laughs) adjournment. Yeah, and of course, since it's the World Cup, we should mention uh, this fun little story. Uh, uh, (laughs) Lebanon, their football association, uh, uh, at the beginning of the World Cup in Russia, right? They voted on all the FIFA members voted on who's going to host the twenty twenty six World Cup. Yeah. And there were two competing bids. One of them from Morocco, a fellow Arab. Nation, fellow Arab country, right? Uh, and another one, a joint bid from the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And the Lebanese uh, Football Association had said beforehand, like, we are going to vote for our Arab brothers, yeah, of course, right? <laughs> Arab solidarity. Uh, but then, but then, the, the the delegation from the Lebanese Football Association went to Moscow, and they voted for the other guys. <laughs> And they said, oh, the, the, the American proposal is just better, uh, uh, you know, on on its, on its face. Uh, it was scored higher, uh, all of this stuff. It was just better. And so in the moment, once we saw all these presentations, like we decided it would be better to go with the U.S.-Mexican-Canadian uh, bid instead. <laughs> and, and so that caused a problem. Uh, it, and we have the sport, uh, uh, youth and sports minister, Mohamed Fanish, Hezbollah guy, He came out and was like, what's going on here? You guys promised to vote for our Arab brothers, right? Uh, But here's the thing. Politicians aren't supposed to get involved in these things, right? And so when Phoenicia came out and said this, like, he was very careful. He didn't say, like, I demand, I expect anything like that. Uh, He was like, I am sure... That he, I think he summoned, uh, like, a, a, the delegation, or he summoned people from the F.A. to come to his office order, and they did, but he said afterwards that, I, I am sure that they will take the right, you know, position. I'm sure they will take the right course of action. Mm. Uh, basically calling for them to uh, enforce some sort of accountability, to, I don't know, fire somebody, something like that, yeah. but without saying it. And so now the F.A., is uh, they don't want to uh, fire anyone. They don't want to have anybody resign over this. They're like, no, sorry. It was just a better bid. And we went with the better bid. Mm. Uh, and, and so now if the question is, what's going to happen? Is finish going to uh, continue on this? Is he going to try to get more involved? And if he does, that could spell trouble for Lebanese football because then FIFA might get involved and say, hey, you're having politicians involve themselves in football, football which lives. is a big no, no. Yeah. OK, so very quickly, uh, we also had Paula Yakubian, the civil society member of parliament, the newly elected uh, parliamentarian. She she did sort of a, a little stunt at the virtual <laughs> landfill. Yeah. She went out there, I think, Tuesday evening and stopped like three trucks coming in. I, I mean, trash is sort of like a really big issue here. We, mm-hmm. we had like the 2015 protest that grew out of that that actually coalesced into the civil society movement that ultimately got Paula Yaoubian elected. Exactly. Right? So it's a really big thing. And I, I think uh, in a future episode, we're going to have to dive a little bit deeper into waste and pollution and all of these issues uh, that are in Lebanon because they're very, not only uh, are, are they just important on like scientific grounds and like public health grounds, but they're also like politically Political. very important. I agree. Um, and also really quickly, uh, we had... Just an update on our naturalization decree thing. Uh, The Lebanese forces uh, appealed officially at the Shura Council Wednesday, said this needs to be struck down. This comes on the heels of of a separate appeal from the uh, Progressive Socialist Party uh, the week before. Uh, Katab also called on Aun to revoke the citizenship for people who are undeserving, who are on the list. Uh, mm-hmm. But they didn't join in either of the appeals. We don't know if they will have their own separate appeal or what. And also, uh, general security was doing a check of all of these, over 400 names. Uh, they were supposed to finish the report by the end of the week. I have not heard anything yet. Uh, but earlier in the week, there was this uh, rumor going around that like 50 names were reported to have been struck. And I'm not sure what this means in terms of process. Mm. Uh, It seems to me as though there would have to be a new decree that would revoke this stuff uh, because this decree has been signed by all of the relevant authorities. But we'll see how the politicians deal with this, how they strike these names from a decree that has already been, you know, signed by everyone. That's true. Okay, so that's the news of the week. And we will keep you informed in coming weeks of of all of the things that happen with these stories. Mm. But... This week, we want to talk a little bit about racism and domestic workers in the country, right? Yep.
1: We have news about racism this week. Um, There was a Sudanese toddler who's only 21 months who was kicked out of his nursery because the mother of another child threatened the nursery that if they don't kick him out, she would um, mobilize other parents to withdraw their kids from the nursery because the kid is black and she doesn't want her child to be... Yeah, what she was
0: like, my kid is not going to be here and not only that, not only going to take my kid. I'm going to bring, you know, bring down all the parents on you. Exactly.
1: Yeah. It was covered by a TV channel MTV and then it went viral. The health ministry actually responded, which was something positive. They gave a warning to the nursery and they announced a plan to carry out like anti-racism training for the parents, for the racist parents basically, the people who were rejecting the black child. And to offer psychosocial support to the child's family. So we don't know how this is going to go in terms of operationally, but it's a good step.
0: Right. I never heard, like, I, I heard that the child was able to find a, a, a daycare. I don't, I haven't heard, though, if it's the same one or a different one or what it's the circumstances is. It's a different one.
1: So the ministry said, you can bring your child to that nursery again because we gave it a warning and it has to accept the child. And then the family said, we already enrolled in, in another nursery, so it's fine
0: okay okay but since we're
1: speaking about racism um i think very connected is another very important thing happening this week which is what you mentioned the domestic workers protests happening today on sunday at three o'clock um and um i think it's good to give some kind of context like the situation of domestic workers in lebanon and their mobilization
0: right this is a bit of like a long, long years long story, right? Exactly. Like they they've been fighting for their rights for a really long time. Um, so what, what? Give us a little bit of the background of that though. Like what what happened? Why is this a deal? All
1: right. So we have an estimated two hundred thousand migrant domestic workers in Lebanon. The workers with legal papers are around one hundred seventy thousand, according to the Ministry of Labor, and they are mostly from Ethiopia and Bangladesh and Philippines and Sri Lanka and Kenya and some other countries. Um, so yeah, the it is, main it's, problem it's then. interesting
0: the in, yeah. it's interesting to note here that like we really don't know right this is an estimate mm. but there's like it, there could be like human rights let's say, like up to a quarter million of them like yeah. and so there's really we're, it's a really fuzzy idea even just of the basics
1: exactly and we're going to talk about later why we don't have very specific data but what's most important about this is that the working conditions are just horrible right yeah. there are no clear working hours um of workers work more than 15 hours a day. Um, They don't have a day off in most cases. Like in 91% of the cases, workers don't have a day off, which they are supposed to have in all contracts, right? Um, Right. They don't receive the salaries that are promised before they migrate. So they migrate based on a specific salary, say $400. And then they come here and they receive $150 a month. And they can't do anything about it after they're here and they
0: have signed the contract. And it's really weird as well. I remember I got to interview the uh, ambassador from Bangladesh Mm -hmm. a few months back. And he was telling me that, like, there are some cases, you know, like, he says most people pay everything, right? But there's there's like 20% of cases uh, where something crazy happens, where, you know, like maybe the employer was supposed to pay $200 a month. But instead, like pays one hundred eighty dollars a month, and it's like mm. it, it like really petty things like that. Like yeah. just that's just twenty dollars a month. Why aren't you able to pay that extra twenty dollars a month? Yeah, you know. That's true.
1: It, but there's also another layer, which is what they have been promised by the recruitment agency at home. Because how this system mm. will work is that workers are recruited at their home country by a recruitment office, and then their information is sent to a recruitment office in Lebanon. Mm. And then when an employer in Lebanon agrees to hire the worker, they would travel to Lebanon. So they are promised something there. And then they are getting something else here.
0: Right. So when they're in Nepal or Sri Lanka or wherever, exactly. Ethiopia, they are told like, oh, you're going to get, you know, $500 a month or something like that. And they come and like, oh, here's your contract. It's for $200 a month exactly. or something like that. And not
1: yeah. only that, in most cases or in a lot of cases, um, they also have their um, salaries withheld for a few months. So, mm. for example, I know a lot of people who don't pay the domestic workers regularly and instead pay them every three or four months to make sure that they don't escape. Yeah. This is one of the, the also the very um, indicative um, dynamics that exists between employers and migrant domestic workers. And apart from that, you have all the major issues of exploitation and abuse, verbal, psychological, sexual And this has led to such a catastrophic situation whereby, according to IRIN, the Humanitarian News Network, two domestic workers die every week in Lebanon. And when we say domestic workers dying every week, a lot of them are dying of unnatural causes. Like Human Rights Watch in 2008 said, one domestic worker dies every week of unnatural causes. And most of these causes are either workers committing suicide or workers trying to escape through the balcony or through windows and then falling and dying. So in both cases, it clearly manifests the amount of pressure and exploitation that exists that forces the worker to escape in this way or commit suicide.
0: Can, can I just make one tiny point here? Sure. Uh, so right now we are recording in a very small room, the smallest room in my house. Uh, we're, 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 we're very make, uh, makeshift operation here. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. So we, are, we found that the acoustics work best in the smallest room in my house, which is referred to as the maids quarters. Yeah. it's it is a tiny tiny room. it's a pantry basically it is off of our kitchen uh, like my my bed would not fit in this room yeah it's it's tiny it's for, it would be it's big enough for like a tiny single bed and maybe like a dresser or something like that and then that, and that's it yeah and, and this is this is what a lot of a lot of houses are built this way. Um, it, so the maid if they do get a room sometimes they don't sometimes they just have to sleep like in the kitchen uh, mm-hmm. but if they do get a room it's the tiniest room in the house
1: <laughs> yeah it's like a scandalous phenomenon in Lebanese architecture like all new buildings have this this room and it's uh, uh, and the law is allowing it and the the union cannot the order of engineers cannot take action against it so it's very Something right. right. And it, it
0: just it just says something like when you're talking about like maids trying to escape uh, or, or, you know, committing suicide, that sort of a thing. Well, just to give you an idea, this is sort of like the standard of how they're treated, e- mm-hmm. even like in, if they're treated well, this is the standard. Exactly.
1: And to give context, like legal context, um, migrant domestic workers in Lebanon are excluded from the Lebanese labor law. So if you go to the Lebanese labor law, Article 7 says maids at households at individuals' houses are excluded from this law. So nothing in the labor law applies to them.
0: So they don't get the basic protections that everybody else gets. No.
1: Instead, we have a a system called kafala, which is Arabic for sponsorship, where basically the migrant workers' legal status is tied to their employer or sponsors, to their Lebanese employer. So this makes them hugely dependent on this employer... For, for the status and their papers and everything. And also it gives the employer a huge margin of freedom to exploit the worker because it's almost a private matter now. They control the legal situation. So the relationship between is between the worker and the employer rather than the worker and the state. Right. And uh, how it happens is how we explained. So Lebanese employers, they go to a recruitment office. And I know this sounds outrageous, but there is often like a menu of workers where basically they have the picture of every worker and the basic information about them and they choose according to this very basic information, basically according to looks, which worker they want and according to age as well because it matters for a lot of people. But this is how this system works. Hmm. So abolishing this system, abolishing the kafala system has been a demand for a long time. And the march today at uh, 3 o'clock in Daura is one of the events that are held to push this
0: demand forward. Who is, um, who's organizing this?
1: So we have a lot of organizers this time because um, it's the International uh, Domestic Workers' Day. Uh, it was actually on 16th of June. Um, but the, the demonstration is held today and it's organized by the anti-racism movement, and' International, CAFA, uh, INSAN, and a lot of local organizations and international uh, organizations okay. in Lebanon. Um, but very briefly the demands of this demonstration are to abolish the kafala system and replace it with a fairer system that allows the worker to seek alternative employment in case of exploitation or just because they want alternative employment which is right. a, a normal right for any worker in
0: the market in labor market. Right and it, if if you if you want like a, a real labor market it would make sense to make that reform right so exactly. that, that that puts the uh employers in a position of competing with each other were like, oh, well, I really like this mate, so I'll pay you $50 more per month if you come to work for me. Like right now, that doesn't really, that can't really happen or it, it not formally, right? Not formally, exactly. Yeah.
1: And the other demand is uh, to stop the administrative detention of domestic workers who are victims of violence and exploitation, because a lot of workers, when they escape the household due to exploitation, They are arrested by the official authorities and they are detained and actually detained, not arrested is the right word. And they are put in a detention center that I will talk about later. But this is how they are treated, although they are victims of abuse and exploitation. And then uh, also to stop detaining um, domestic workers who have children or start families, which is also a Lebanese policy. Third demand is to monitor the practices of recruitment agencies that we talked about and to tighten the the violations that they might be guilty of against the workers. And fourth is to ratify the ILO, International Labour Organization Convention 189, Mm -hmm. um, which is the Domestic Workers Convention. It was signed in 2011 to improve the working conditions of domestic workers and it requires governments to provide domestic workers with labour protections that are equivalent to other workers. So they won't be exceptions anymore in the labor law like they are today. Mm. So to give them working hours, minimum wage, overtime compensation, daily and weekly rest periods, social security, maternity leaves, etc.
0: I mean, aren't a lot of these things, though, already present in the contracts that are signed? Like legally, if I have a maid, then I am required to, you know, limit her working hours to like eight hours a day already. So... That's true. What would this do?
1: So this means that the state is responsible of enforcing these contracts very proactively and um, not leave it up to, like, the, the employer and the worker to figure out the contract. So like the state would have to take strict, a more active role. More active role. And also to, to uh, provide additional benefits, like maternity leave, maternity mm, protection. Right. Doesn't exist right. because they are deported if they are pregnant. Um, Social security obviously minimum wage uh, the minimum wage in Lebanon is already too low it's 475 dollars i think and this minimum wage is double the wage of an um, average domestic worker right so this is really far from what we have the situation is really horrible that such a normal convention on workers rights seems like a dream
0: wait so so if they if they've been fighting for all this stuff you know, for so long? Like, why why hasn't anything changed yet? I, I don't understand.
1: Um, yeah, I think there are many, like, perspectives on this, and the workers themselves who have been organizing can have, like, better insights. But I think one of the major issues is that workers, like, are structurally fragmented, right? Each worker is working in an individual household, so they are not in contact with other workers like you would have you normally in any workplace. So this makes... Organization among workers much more difficult
0: and they're not even in contact in a lot of cases with like their embassies, right? Exactly. So like they can't even like the embassy is often unaware that somebody is a domestic worker. That they're even here, right? Embassies exactly. don't have visibility on this stuff. If something bad happens to one of them, if like one of them dies, for instance, then like the embassy isn't going to be told probably until days later and by then you don't it's harder to figure out how they died and everything right definitely uh, so, so the, yeah they're, they're cut off from each other and from any sort of like authority that might be able to help them
1: exactly and they are like in most cases locked up in their houses so they don't have the freedom of movement so in the worst case they can't even go somewhere and seek assistance so right. they are so frag- they are not only fragmented in terms of like worker organization or mobilization they are also like physically locked up right right. and they don't
0: have like cell phones a lot of times as well right I
1: mean a lot of them do but I'm sure that a huge portion of domestic workers don't have or maybe they have with very restrictions on how to to very strict restrictions on using them
0: yeah a Lebanese acquaintance of mine once sort of like bragged that she was so good to her maid and she was like yeah we bought her a cell phone and she like Pulled it out of her purse though, and was oh like, "When I go home, I'll, you know, give it to her for a couple of hours to let her use her cell phone." Oh <laughs> and, and she thought that this was like, "I'm, I'm such a good person by allowing her to have this cell phone, like." But this shows
1: it. how like workers are not treated as as workers at all. They are treated either as children, like someone that you give the cell phone to for a couple of hours, is usually right. a child, or as. Literally commodities when you go to a recruitment office and you're like, I want this worker, and then it's kind of your property and you control yeah. the freedom of movement. And, and,
0: and like, I think it's important to talk about like why that happens though, right? So, yeah. uh, people who have made a lot of them are afraid of letting them have like communication, like unrestricted communication with others, right? Probably in part because, well, if all of the maids start talking to each other, then that could cause massive problems for the employers, Definitely. we'll say.
1: Like, the main means of communication that we have today is either WhatsApp, if the workers have WhatsApp and they have each other's numbers, or through balconies. I'm sure you've noticed it, right? Yeah, yeah. Workers communicate through balconies, and they share stories, and they talk about everything over, like, maybe one hour or two, and you would be maybe wondering why in this very uncomfortable situation of, like, putting your body out of the window to be able to talk to another person, but, well, if you're locked up, there's...
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, like, almost Handmaid's Tale-esque. Yeah. 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 Um, and to
1: give, like, more context on what the workers have been doing and how the state has been treating them, we have to mention that the workers did try to organize in a union in 2015. Mm. So the union was started in 2015 with ILO's sponsorship and the support of Fenasol, which is the Federation of of worker and employees' uh, unions in Lebanon. Um, but then labor minister, uh, Sejan Azzi, who was Kata'ib's vice president, right? He said um, he refused, obviously, to give the unions a license. In Lebanon, the Ministry of Labor gives licenses to unions. So you cannot, you don't have the freedom of creating a an union and just becoming an union automatically. You need to re- the recognition of the Ministry of Labor. Yeah. So he rejected and he said, Well, if we give them the right to unionize, imagine now all of these other foreign workers asking for the right to unionize. And he's like, maybe we'll have a union for Filipino workers and uh, a union for Ethiopian workers. And he was talking about it
0: like as a dystopian thing to happen, not as a... Right, we can't can't allow this to happen. Clearly, that would would be a disaster. (laughs) So it was
1: a bit embarrassing, very embarrassing. But um, like a lot of organizations stood up But they couldn't do anything. They signed a petition. They couldn't do anything because in Lebanese labor law, um, Article 92, it says that foreigners can join a union but cannot create their own and cannot vote in a union and cannot get elected in a union position. So they're basically passive members. So basically, they cannot unionize. Yeah. Um, Also, Lebanese state employees cannot unionize, by the way. The other thing is that Lebanon has not ratified the other ILO convention that gives the right to all workers to form these unions right Um, because of these exceptions with foreign workers and with state employees Mm. so this this has been like like the main obstacle against um, unionization which is the main way in which any group of workers in the world fight for their rights yeah and other than that um, because of this like humanitarian um, situation embassies have tried to intervene by blocking or like countries have tried to intervene by blocking um, the migration of their workers to Lebanon. Like many the, the, countries. The
0: did. Philippines did this uh, True. Uh, and the Ethiopians a couple years as back, well. right? Okay.
1: And the Ethiopians are the largest migrant domestic worker community in Lebanon. Uh, Ethiopia banned their workers from coming here, but it didn't stop them because they come through illegal trafficking networks. And hmm. this is worse because then you won't have any data about them. You won't have any control over the contracts. Nothing. So this is like the worst yeah. situation. and And the number of migrant workers arriving has not uh, decreased at all. It has increased. So it's an indication that it's not working. This policy is not working at all. The policy of blocking workers from coming. And I think the third um, important thing to discuss here is um, the way that the Lebanese state punishes the workers for being active for their rights. So we have mentioned that how the system of kafala and um, the conventions that are not ratified and the labor law restrictions put like all these lines on what the workers can do and cannot. But even if they go over these lines and try to um, to uh, take their negative experiences into activism yeah. or unionization, the state is very strict against that. First of all, most workers who have negative experiences, who escape their employer's house because of exploitation and abuse, are illegal for the state, right? Automatically, so, right? Automatically, yeah. So, what they, what they do with, the, with these workers is that they detain them in a scandalous, to say the least, detention center that is literally below the Adli roundabout. It's an underground parking lot, a yeah. former underground parking yeah. lot that was turned into a prison. So
0: uh, I've I've been there actually. You've been into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what did you say so, there? Uh, uh, yeah, small incident where uh, the police mistook like back in the day they used to have like the akamas the the visas that looked like a fourth grader made them out of like construction paper and scotch tape, and so like they mistook mine for uh, something that was like forged or something, and so they shipped me off to this place. Wow. It's, uh, it's uh, you know it was a mistake. I was out you know shortly thereafter, but. um yeah, it, it's so weird. It's underground, right? As you say, it's a former parking lot. So, like, the lines, uh, like, the parking lines are still painted, you know, on the ground, wow. on the floor. But now there's just, like, bars and stuff and, and cells and everything. And, like, I, I couldn't I, I, couldn't really see what was going on, mm-hmm. right? They just, like, took me to, like, the 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 initial holding place. Mm. Uh, uh, but, like, I could hear, like, women singing, you know, like, hymns mm. and stuff. Uh, and, and so there were definitely, like, a lot of people down there. Basically everyone that you see, because it's general security, is a foreigner, right? That's where they bring foreigners yep. to, uh, you know, if if they think that they've run afoul of the system or whatever. Um, and yeah, there there were just like weird stories. Like, uh, I I met one guy there, who I forget. I want to say he was from Seychelles or something like that, and he mm-hmm. was just like, yeah, I've been here for, I think he was there for over a year or something, and like he just couldn't, he didn't have documentation to like show things and. Mm. That, like, there was just no hope in sight for him getting out of there. And this place is, as you say, it's underground, which means there's no light.
1: No light and no fresh air, right?
0: Exactly, exactly. So if you're there, I mean, imagine not seeing sunlight for over a year. That's that's the situation of a lot of these people there. It's
1: horrible. And I've read that they also don't have proper beds, so they have this very bad... Um, mattresses
0: on it was like a mattress on the floor, yeah. Was...
1: And the prison has, or the detet- detention center, has three times its capacity. So there's absolutely nothing good about this, and it's absolutely scandalous, but for a lot of reasons, maybe related to, to racism and other things that we can talk about. And uh, by the way, not only are they detained, a lot of them are deported because of their activism. So we had two union leaders arrested in 2016, based on their activism within the union that we mentioned. And one of them, the main um, kind of uh, figure, Sujana Rana, was deported uh, because of her activism and her colleague, Roja Limbu was arrested. Um, So this is the other method of punishment that the state is using. And I think the final component that I would think of for why workers or why this movement has not been very successful is that because of all these restrictions we're talking about, because of the situation, workers do not have the real agency in what's happening. So it's always other organizations and international or local that have to be like doing the public and legal processes, right? Because the workers themselves have so many restrictions. So this means that the people leading the formal form of the struggle are not exactly the people who are victims of the struggle.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and, and and also, on the other side of things, you've got the people who can make the situation better. They really don't necessarily have an interest to... Like, you're talking about the entire Lebanese political class. Like, the in, anybody who is, like, middle class or above has a maid here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... The, the, they're benefiting basically from this power imbalance. They have this power. If they get a a good, quote unquote, good maid, you know, who doesn't like rock the boat, then like they're set, right?
1: Yeah, and if I can, exactly. And if I can add one dimension to that would be that this commodification of workers, right? The ability Mm. to employ a worker for 100 or $200 per month is a good alternative for this political class than providing actual welfare services that these workers are doing, right? Yeah. So instead of actually providing healthcare and childcare, you can hire a worker for a very low salary yeah. and have this total freedom to exploit this worker, which which basically means that most families have an alternative to this welfare state that is closer to modern slavery than anything, but it's uh, working for these families and it's working for the state. So. There's no real interest on any side to break it except the workers' side.
0: Wait, so that that sounds pretty bleak, though. So basically, there is this protest going on today. And from what you just said, it sounds to me like nothing's going to change.
1: No, I think I cannot say that. I'm saying that the only thing that can make this happen, in my opinion, is that there's a lot of solidarity among, obviously, activist groups, Lebanese activist groups, um, foreign workers and national like Lebanese workers. But the most important part is that we need to find ways in which these workers would have more agency in their own struggle because they are the only ones who are carrying it forward. Everyone else has the guilty of privilege of being the ones employing these workers including activists and their families, let's be honest. Right, right, right,
0: right. There are are so many, you know, supposedly liberal people here who still, like, they, they take advantage of the system just like anybody else. Definitely. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll we'll see what happens today at the demonstration. Uh, hopefully this will get some traction, uh, although I don't know, given given that rundown that you just gave me, I, <laughs> I'm more pessimistic, I think, <laughs> than, no. than I was. Like, <laughs> what meant to do. <laughs> I to it. I am more pessimistic than I was half an hour ago, but I understand this uh, subject a lot better. Uh, so we're going to follow up on this, of course. This is like one of those big issues that just continues to burn like year in and year out. But, yeah, that's all we have time for today. And, of course, we'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, Until then, I'm Benjamin Redd. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast.
1: The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red. Produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Alfil.